Well, where better to be on God's holy, sacred Sabbath day but in fellowship and worship together? To be honest with you, it just seems uh, two or three days ago that um, I was worshipping on the previous Sabbath. It just uh, seems to go so quickly. I suppose that's what happens when you get a little older. Time just seems to race a little faster. But it is a joy to be with you. I know that the Lord's going to have a rich blessing for us because I've been praying for it and I'm sure you've been praying for it. And we come not just out of curiosity, we come not just because it's the habit to do it, but we come to worship in the beauty of holiness. In spirit and in truth, that's the call that God is uh, making for each one of us. Well, there were some of you that were not here last night, and uh, what I will commence to do will be to give you a little overview or bring it in once in a while, but of course we're going to move on into newer fields now, but I just want to tell you how privileged it is to be one of God's children here right at the very end of the end of time. I was dismayed, to be very honest, with the fact that virtually no attention was given to the significance of one of the greatest and most critical anniversaries, especially the Seventh-day Adventists, that took place the 15th of February this year. I saw not a word about it in any of our denominational publications. My brother and I had called back to Hope in November of last year and said, you've got to get out a special issue for February. And that they turned it around and they got that issue out. But as some of you recall, the 15th of February... 1798 was the end of something and the beginning of something else. It was the end of? Yes, a 1260-year prophecy or the medieval reign of the papacy. Not the end of the papacy. Although an obituary was written in a Parisian paper declaring the papacy dead. But it was also the beginning of what? The time of the end. What a tragedy that 200 long weary years have passed and we're still on planet Earth. Isn't that tragic? All I can say, it's a declaration to our indifference, to our lethargy, to our unconcern for the peoples of this world, to the failure to allow Christ to work his full work of salvation in each of our lives, that our hearts might be purified and our souls cleared of the guilt of so much sin in our past history. Brethren and sisters, I am absolutely convinced that we are now 
at the end of the end of time. God is certainly waiting for his people to reflect his character. Perfectly reflect, not just reflect it. Perfectly reflect his character. God is also waiting for a people who will have allowed him to put all self out of the life. Basically, by our very direction, we are selfish, prideful people. We can't hang on to that, dear brethren and sisters. We have to find the true pathway to eternal salvation. I pray that God has been blessing in many ways. I um, plan to mention a, a few things that are heartland because that's the ministry I most am aware of. But this morning I want to take your attention to a continuation of this dialogue on liberty and freedom. If you'll open your Bibles to the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 3, and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17 is a wonderful statement on freedom. It says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What a statement. It's not the circumstances you find yourself in. You can even be in a prison and still have liberty. You can be in chains and still have liberty. Because it depends upon whether you've allowed the Spirit of Jesus Christ to be in your heart. Because if He is in your heart, you're free indeed. Because the law of liberty no longer has claims upon you because you have been liberated by Jesus Christ from the violation of the law, from sin, transgression, and iniquity. And so as we go through this series on freedom... Liberty. I want you to remember that the true liberty for the Christian is not just physical liberty. It's the spiritual liberty that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. We talked last night a little about the development of liberty principles here in the United Kingdom. Commencing with the Magna Carta, going through the peasants, Revolt, the trial of John Bunyan, the execution of John James, the bringing of the Sabbath message, the wonderful Sabbath message across the Atlantic to Rhode Island in America, the trial of William Penn, what that meant to the development of freedom. Now remember that trial was in 1670, the tenth year of the reign of Charles II, and so many Fearful persecutions took place during his reign. But uh, in reaction to that, great changes were to come. Charles II died in 
1685, 25 years into his reign at the age of 55. And his younger brother, James II, came to the throne, but that was to be a short reign. The total rejection of Catholicism by the Protestant masses of this nation decided they no longer could tolerate a king that was trying to lead them back into the bosom of Rome. And the king was forced to abdicate. And you remember that the Dutch prince, the Prince of Orange, William, and his wife, strangely enough, the daughter of the deposed king, were to come and jointly reign here and set a firm foundation for Protestantism in this nation. By the way, a foundation that is being seriously undermined today here in Great Britain, if I can read the presses, at least what I'm reading overseas. I have no question that there is a strong drift away and that soon, if time were to last, there'll be a wavering in the monarchy and in Parliament and in every institution of this nation because there is one goal and it's a goal that always Satan has been ready to wait many years, sometimes decades and centuries for and that is to bring everything back under his control. And so as we talk about these events, let us keep clearly and thoroughly in mind that this is not how Britain is going to be at the moment, last moment of Earth's history. Indeed, no other country of the world will be having the freedom that they now experience today. 1620. James I was still on the throne. He had not called Parliament for six years, but he called the House of Lords and the House of Commons together. In 1620, the Baptists that in those six years period had been under terrible persecution sent a petition to the king, one of a number of petitions the Baptists sent to King James I. And they took some hope. It proved to be vain hope from the address that the king made to the parliament on that occasion. Here are some of the words of the king translated into modern English. The maintenance of religion stands in two points. One, persuasion, which must proceed. Two, compulsion, which must follow. Now that is exactly the Catholic concept. You first try to persuade, and if persuasion fails, you coerce or compel. But here is the Protestant king of England using exactly the same terminology. But he seems to waver, almost um, go back and forth in this speech. In fact, so much so, the parliament decided to take things into their own hands. And they went for the coercive side. Because the next words gave some hope to the Baptist. Had he read their petition, was he influenced by it? Because these were his words. For as all the world cannot create a new creature, but it never so, be it never so little, 
so that no law of man can make a good Christian in heart without inward grace. That's true, isn't it? You can force a person to come to uh, church. You can force him to do the outward ceremonies and ordinances, but unless the heart has been broken on the rock Christ Jesus, unless the grace of Jesus is in the life, he is not a true Christian. You can bundle them into church. But all you do is weaken the church. If the church is made up of coerced people, how can you expect it to be the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer that they all might be one? Because people are bringing all their different sins and grievances and hatreds and envies and strife and jealousies and every other adversity of most emotion into the worship of God. Then he went on to say, Yet it is not enough to trust to a good cause and let it go alone. Likewise, the busy Puritans do but see how busy they are to persuade the people. So now it comes a little negative thought. These busy Puritans, they're going around trying to persuade people. Was that wrong? Oh, I wish we were busy Adventists today going around trying to persuade the people. I'll never forget an experience that I had here the very first time I set foot on English soil in 1974. And uh, I was being driven up, and I don't think I'll give any identification, but it was one of the leaders of the British Union at the time. And he was driving me up to the Camp Hill Church in Birmingham to preach. The one and only time I've preached there. And I understand there's a new church there now. I think the old one burnt or something, didn't it? Or something happened. But as we were coming up, I was trying to encourage him. And um, we were talking about why God's work wasn't prospering as it should. Here in Britain, a land that had been riveted upon the Reformation, that so many great Preachers and missionaries had gone forth from the British Isles to take the gospel of salvation over the world. And uh, he gave all sorts of reasons. He said, you know, the British are very wary of newfangled American religions. And... uh, They see Seventh-day Adventists as one of those kind of religions. Well, if we preach just the Word of God, it's got nothing to do with America. It's got all to do with what God has said. And then he said, uh, then I said to him, but I've just been reading in the newspaper that there are 85,000 Mormons in this country. And over 60,000, this is 1974, Jehovah's Witnesses and the article that I'd read in the American press was talking very much about the growth of these two religions here in the United Kingdom and I'm sure the numbers are much greater than that today oh but he said they upset the British no end because they go invading knocking on their doors and so on well they couldn't have upset every Englishman because they were being converted. It told me that the thought was, we can't do that. We can't knock on doors. 
because we might offend somebody. My dear brethren and sisters, we have a responsibility to take the invitation. If we do it peaceably, if we do it in love and kindness, how can we be doing anything but forwarding the work of Jesus Christ? Maybe the Seventh-day Adventist name would be vastly better known here in Great Britain than it is today. I've never found a person that didn't know the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I've found numbers of people here, literally, that don't know the name Seventh-day Adventists. I'll never forget our experience there in Coventry in 1986 when Hal Mayer and myself went to that club only, well, just a quarter, a third of a mile away. I don't know what kind of a club it was now. And we got into conversation with three women and two men. Not one of them had ever heard the name Seventh-day Adventists. Not one of them. I'll never forget the Scotsman with his little Irish wife. They're amongst the, the group. Oh, it was pitiful. She was so timid. We tried to invite them to come to the meetings, but she was so afraid, I think, that all hell would be let loose on her because of her Roman Catholic directions, even though she had been... She was out of the Roman Catholic Church for moral reasons. The husband said he was an atheist, a Scotsman. I asked how anyone that understood the heritage of the Scots could ever be an atheist. But we had a lovely talk with them. But brothers and sisters, God is calling us to be that way. I mentioned last night about the great work of the Baptists and uh, how they tried all they could to um, bring some degree of, of blessing to the, the people of England and freedom. Back in 1614, Leonard Busher, a Baptist, a citizen of London, wrote a letter to King James I and the High Court of Parliament. I want you to know that all these Baptists were so careful to state their loyalty to the crown. They wanted to assure them that they were loyal citizens. They were not subversive people. They were not trying to undermine the monarchy or the king. But amongst the things that he said in that paper was no state can evidence that any religion or heresy was ever expiated by the sword or by violence, nor have I ever judged it a way of planting the truth. Important words. You can't get rid of Christianity or religion just by suppressing it. But neither does it implant truth to do such a thing. And then he said, the only way to make a nation happy and preserve the people in love, peace and tranquility is to give liberty to all to serve God according as they are persuaded in most agreeable uh, and are most agreeable to his word, to speak, write, print peaceably and without molestation in behalf of their several tenets and ways of worship, 
wholesome and pertinent laws being made upon penalties to restrain all kinds of vice and violence, all kinds of reproach, slander or injury, either by word or deed. Yes, the government has a right to legislate against all sorts of wickedness, but not against the opportunity of men and women being able to come in peace and worship and also proclaim and share the message that God has given to them. The king may or may not take any notice if he ever read it. And then there was another uh, one of the dissenters, Henry Burton, also a Baptist, and his concern was the actions of the, the Presbyterians. This is what he wrote. I hope upon perusal thereof you that are my brethren of the Presbyterian way. He was writing kindly to them. Will abate much of your misguided eagerness in prosecuting your conscientious brethren. Consider, I beseech you, St. Paul, before his conversion. He was as zealous, I make no question, as any of you when he persecuted the saints and made havoc in the church, that is, of God's people congregating together to worship and serve God, when he entered into every house and drew out both men and women to put them to prison, when he breathed out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, when he procured letters of the high priest to go to Damascus, where if he found any of that way, then the heretical way in his account, he might bring them down to Jerusalem where he consented to Stephen's death. So here he was comparing the Presbyterians in their eagerness and in their persecution to Paul before his conversion. Oh, there's so many of the wonderful statements. I mentioned last night that one of the Baptist had set out 70 different reasons why the king should offer liberty to his people. I'm going to read you a few of them. One, because Christ has not commanded any king, bishop or minister to persecute the people. That was his number one point. Two, because Christ had commanded his bishops and ministers to persuade princes and people to hear and believe the gospel. Three, because through persecution it will be certain that the ambassadors of Jesus may be persecuted, imprisoned, burned, hanged or banished for delivering the message of their gracious Lord. Four, because we cannot have liberty of the gospel until there is no forcing of the conscience of men. Five, because Christ came into the world to save sinners and not destroy them. That's rather a strong statement, isn't it? Because it will be a poor example to those without Christianity. Seven, because if persecution be not laid down and liberty of conscience set up, none of the Jews or other strangers will be convinced of the gospel. Eight, where there is persecution in the land, those who have different beliefs from the king and rulers have to depart for some other land of freedom. Nine, because of the persecution, the king and the state will have many dissemblers against the authority and office of the king and state. Ten, if all are forced to belong to one church, then indeed there will be many different religious beliefs within that church. Eleven, if liberty is not set up, you may uh, persecute the true Christians instead of the false ones. Twelve, if Christian rules 
will not allow other Christians of different belief to practice and preach their faith, then how can we demand such toleration of non-Christian nations? In other words, if our people go over into non-Christian, how can we ask them to be tolerant? When religion forces the conscience, then it becomes a religion against the will and a tyranny over the soul as well as over the body. 14. If Protestants continue persecution, where are they more merciful than the Papists and the Turks? 15. Because the King and Parliament would not willingly be forced against their conscience by the persecution of the Bishop of Rome and his princes, so also should they not force the Christians in their domain. 16. By forcing the conscience, men and women are driven to the devil in their errors. If they be her there be heresy for which they are hanged and burned. And 17, persecution of Christians by Christians justifies papists and Jews persecuting Christians. You get the kind of arguments that were used. But there's a greater argument, I believe, than even the arguments that came forth here, brethren and sisters. And that is that the Lord gave us liberty. The Lord did not control our conscience but unfortunately as Christianity took on the concepts of predestination the idea that God has preordained some to eternal salvation and some to the eternal burning torment there was a belief that this justified humans from following a similar course but the Bible says God is love God is not willing that any should perish but that all should Come to repentance. How oft would I have gathered thee? Remember his words over Jerusalem. As a hen gathereth her chickens, and ye would not. And the final invitation, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and whosoever will let him come. That's the basis of Christianity. God gave to man the greatest of power. He gave to each one of us individuality. There's not one of us here in this room alike or at least exactly alike i hope we're like-minded in the truth but we're not alike in personality we're not alike in temperament we're not alike in uh, the physical appearance and all sorts of various differences that we have god gave that individuality and then the servant of the Lord goes on to say the power to do two things. Does anyone remember? It's in the book Education. Individuality, the power to think and to do. In other words, the, the power to make decisions, to make choices, and to act upon them. That's what's involved here. You see, dear brethren and sisters, this is the call that is, God is making upon his people. And we need the freedom to be able to do, the, do this for the Lord's sake. Well, as you know, in 1688, when William of Orange came across the channel and became the new king with his queen, that was the appropriate time to pass the British Bill of Rights, which was finally signed and settled in 1689. 
I've had to explain to the Americans what a great document that is. You know, with their concentration naturally upon the American Bill of Rights, many of them have no idea the influence of the British Bill of Rights on the American Bill of Rights. And it is true that in some areas the American Bill of Rights goes beyond the British Bill of Rights. But even today that Bill of Rights is a tremendous safeguard for the British citizens. In fact, you may or may not know that every state of Australia has in its law the British Bill of Rights. It's not in the Commonwealth law, but every state of Australia still has the British Bill of Rights enshrined in its, its laws. And its impact upon the American people and populace was very great indeed. It's just that they've forgotten it. Well, I pointed out last night that Heartland is located in an extraordinarily critical place in terms of location, in terms of the development of religious freedom in the United States of America. Virginia is an interesting, well, it's not a state, as I may have mentioned to you before. It's one of the four commonwealths of the United States. There are 46 states and four commonwealths in America. And Virginia happens to be one of the commonwealths. They commonly say 50 states, but that technically is not correct. It's 46 states and four commonwealths. The commonwealths being Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Kentucky. But the Commonwealth of Virginia, unquestionably, as a colony prior to uh, the War of Independence, was the most oppressive um, colony in all of the 13 original colonies. Today, it's a hotbed of um, religious activity. After all, you have Jerry Falwell and what he had, his moral majority groups and other groups that he has founded there in Lynchburg, a hundred miles more or less south of Heartland. And then over on the coast, you have Pat Robertson. And his efforts in the various political, religio-political activities of the United States. The, it is leading the way in what's going to be a strongest of efforts to reunite church and state and have the church controlling the state. They're not interested in the state controlling the church, by the way. Through the electorate, they're hoping that the church can control the state. That's their goal, that's their purpose. So let me go back a little bit on the history of the founding of the colony of Virginia. By the way, Virginia was vastly bigger than it is today in those days. It took in all West Virginia and it took in parts of Ohio right up to the Great Lakes. So don't just look at the map and look at Virginia as it's today. It was a huge territory 
in the times of colonial days. Remember, it was the Civil War that broke away West Virginia from Virginia. There was an early effort in the beginning of the 17th century to found a colony in Virginia. 1603. By the way, that's why it was called Virginia, after the Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth. That's the basis of the name. Because she was, I don't know whether she just died or was, a, was just about to die at that point. But that colony disappeared and no one knows to this day what happened to it. The assumptions are that they were all killed by Indians, but no one knows that. But in 1607, Anglicans left this country to found the colony which did survive at Jamestown, right there on the east coast of the central seaboard of the United States as it is today. It didn't take long for the mentality of the Church of England to become totally dominant. And by the 1640s, very strong laws were in place against anyone preaching or trying to establish a meeting house, a religious meeting house, or anyone not attending church. In fact, it got so bad that the laws... After a third unexcused absence, now it's like as if you're going to school. If you had a third unexcused absence, the penalty was death. You can imagine the, all the made-up excuses. The headaches and the aching back or whatever to try to get a legitimate excuse for missing church. On the other hand, very few miss church. You can understand why. Can you imagine it? You come to worship God because there's a gun at your head or at least a noose not far away. How can that be Christianity? How can that be the kind of response that Jesus would have presented when he was on earth? He was the... The Son of God who could have coerced everyone to follow him. He could have taken hold of all the Jews and forced them to be his disciples. In fact, the whole inhabitants of the world, if he so choose. But that's not the way of God. It's not the way of Jesus. Well, as a, a matter of obvious fact, few other people came into the colony of Virginia would you go there if you were not a an Anglican <coughs> they had their conventicle act we mentioned that last night the conventicle act that no one was to preach without permission of the Church of England here that was in England or to preach that which was contrary to the Church of England you might even have a license to preach but if they heard you're preaching something contrary to the Church of England, severest of punishments. That's why Bunyan went to jail, because he broke the first part of it. He was preaching without a license. That's why William Penn 
was brought before him because he'd broken both. He was, of course, a Quaker. So obviously he didn't believe the, all the things that the Anglican church believed. He could have been put to death, certainly imprisoned for a huge amount of his life. The first people to test the waters in Virginia that were not Anglicans were Presbyterians. And they came basically from two areas. Presbyterians came from Ireland to, Pre uh, to Virginia. But they also came from Pennsylvania. So there was an American breed of Presby <coughs> excuse me, Presbyterians and there was a Pennsylvania breed of, Pencil of uh, I mean, an Irish breed of Presbyterians. Now, there was enough wilderness and enough uninhabited area to get away from the populace and not be seen much what they were doing for a little while. After all, it was a huge territory. Most of it was uninhabited. But there was a governor in Virginia by the name of Governor Gooch. And this was the opportunity for the Presbyterians because Governor Gooch was in very serious problems and he needed friends. And at the time he was in great difficulties, the Presbyterians made petitions to him asking for his permission to open little worship houses and to have preachers preach. And Gooch decided to support them. He needed some more friends in Virginia. And he gave them letters of toleration. Now the Presbyterians were willing to accept toleration. Because they had a heritage very much the same as the Anglicans and the Lutherans, and the Calvinists, that they too understood how to persecute when they were in an appropriate situation. Coming from the Calvinist tradition, they thought it was a privilege to have toleration. So they built their little church houses, and they had their ministers. But unlike the Anglican, they received no funds from the state. Just as traditionally over there, the glebes had been set up in different places for the church. So over there, and all the Anglican ministers were paid from the treasury of the colony. The taxes raised from the people of the colony. That was not afforded to the Presbyterian ministers. But the Presbyterians, at least at this time, in the latter part of the 17th century, were willing to accept that. But by the 18th century, Baptists started to try to find little places in Virginia. And this was an altogether 
different situation. You see, the Baptists had the traditions that I've read here. They were unwilling to accept toleration. They wanted freedom. Now, there is a vast difference. In the 11 o'clock hour, I'm going to spend some time on the difference between toleration and freedom. And they did not get that. And as they multiplied very rapidly in the second half of the 18th century, the decision came to oppress them. They were banned from preaching. They were banned from setting up churches of any kind, either in homes or building little chapels or whatever. And eventually, the ministers started to be imprisoned. The first ministers were imprisoned in Spotsylvania County, which is about 30 miles from Heartland, north of northeast of Heartland. But very quickly, in many others of the counties, other Baptist ministers were imprisoned. They made their petitions, they made their pleas, just as they had over here in England. But to no avail. The mentality was great. I read a book on the Baptists in Virginia, written by a Baptist minister, 1900, he had actually been the pastor of the Baptist church in Culpeper, which is 12 miles north of Heartland. But at the time he wrote the book, I'm sure it was because he'd been in Culpeper, he got the inspiration to write the book, but he was down right at the bottom of Virginia in Danville running a female college. He was the president of a exclusively women's college down in the right at the very bottom of Virginia at the time he wrote it. Very fascinating detailing of the history of Baptists, the development of Baptists and the persecution of Baptists there in Virginia. I want to come to 1775 one year before the Declaration of Independence. A young lawyer rode into Culpeper, right into the main square of Culpeper. And as he rode in, he saw a man being mercilessly beaten, tied to a whipping post, Two men with whips tipped with metal. The blood was running down. He could see the rib cage of this man. And this lawyer couldn't imagine what terrible crime this man must have committed. But when he inquired of one of the locals there watching this whipping, he was told that this man was a Baptist preacher, one of a dozen that had been taken to the lockup in Culpeper. And he was being whipped because he refused to stop preaching. 
fearful situation. You know, those things happened. We sometimes hear America called the land of liberty. I tell you, it wasn't in those days. And um, by the way, the young lawyer was Patrick Henry. How many of you know the name of Patrick Henry? You could never say that. In an, at least Americans would know who Patrick Henry was, but I don't blame Britishers for not knowing him. Probably no one ignited the American populace in the War of Independence, that's maybe why British don't remember him, <laughs> than Patrick Henry. But he went away absolutely sick to the heart of what had happened to this man and determined that we, he would fight for religious liberty for the conscience of every human being. It was in the most famous speech, probably considered the most famous speech just at the time of um, the War of Independence. It was there in St. John's Episcopal, what we would call Episcopal today, it was still an Anglican church then, in Richmond, the capital of Virginia. You'll probably remember some of these words when I read them to you. This was the, the heart of what he said, and of course this ignited the nation to break what they felt were the shackles of George III. What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what other men may do, but as for me, give me liberty. Do you remember the rest of that? Or give me death. That was the watch call of the revolution. And of course, pa Patrick Henry went on to be one of the considered great heroes of the establishment of the emerging nation of America, of the United States of America. But he always traced his earnestness and freedom back to this incident there in Culpeper. By the way, two days later, that poor minister was taken out and flogged again, and he died under the second flogging. A martyr to the cause of only wanting to preach what he believed was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brethren and sisters, the pathway to liberty is a blood-stained pathway. Men and women gave up their lives. Some, of course, were put to death. Others were thrown in prison and died in prison. Often in those days to go to prison was just about a death sentence anyway because of the conditions and the disease that rampaged in the prisons if you came out alive, alive out of the prisons later in this series we're going to look probably tomorrow morning certainly I believe it'll be tomorrow morning at the at Seventh-day Adventists that died for their Sabbath keeping and I don't mean in some far off heathen nation 
I'm talking about in the United States of America. Well, there was another incident that took place, even closer to Heartland, in the town of Orange, eight miles south of Orange. James Madison. How many have heard of James Madison? He was the a president of the United States. He was the fourth president of the United States. He may have been the most outstanding mind in the early days of the United States. Some believe even a greater mind than Jefferson. Certainly they two together formed an understanding on issues that no other Americans seem to have been capable of improving upon. The home of Madison was four miles from Orange. It's now quite a tourist attraction. Montpelier was the name of the place. That's 12 miles from Heartland. You can see what I'm talking about, how close these events happened to, to where Heartland Institute. Maybe God has put it there to raise the banner of religious freedom higher and higher. Madison was just back from Princeton where he had completed his degree. He was 21 years of age at the time. Now keep in mind that Madison was a man of very tiny stature, but of giant mind. He'd, by 14, he'd read through all the encyclopedias in his father's library and virtually all the books that his dad had in his library. At the age of 14, he'd finished those. This was a man that had read voraciously, as hardly few people know how to do today. Madison, probably, he certainly wasn't a Baptist. He may have even been a Presbyterian because Princeton was founded by Presbyterians. I'm not sure. But he was in doing a little business in Orange. Now, Orange today is only 2,500 people. How small do you think it was in um, those days, in the, 18th, the end of the 18th century? And as he was walking in the street, he heard someone preaching. So he looked to try and find out who was preaching. He could see no one. So he walked back to where the voice was coming from and found here was a Baptist preacher in a little lock-up in the middle of Orange, preaching out of the bars of his prison. You know, it's hard to stop a preacher preaching if he's got the love and power of the Lord in his life. And Madison was aghast. Only 21 years of age, but made a determination that he was going to do everything he could to stop this unreasonableness. A man has the right to preach. Jefferson made similar resolutions. Because he lives about, lived about 50 miles south of Heartland. It's amazing how influential the Virginians were. In fact, they absolutely dominated the early history of 
the new nation of the United States. And still today, there will be more presidents from Virginia than any other state of the Union. However, there's been no one since Woodrow Wilson just after the First World War. Virginia has lost its heritage, there's no question about that. But the first four pre presidents were Virginian. Six of the first eight presidents were Virginians. That's how it was in those days. But Madison and Jefferson forged a affinity with each other. Their minds, their intellect and their, their, their thinking, their, their careful thinking seemed to find fellowship one with the other. It was Madison more than Jefferson that wrote the Bill of Rights. But both were centered on freedom. And you know, Jefferson tried for 10 years to stop the persecution of the Baptists. That's how ingrained it was. A man of his stature. Even he could not get through. It took 10 years. Eventually he got final legislation through the State House in Virginia to stop the persecution of Baptists and by extension others. Now, it's ironic today for those of you that have been to Virginia, just start trying to count how many Episcopal churches there are in Virginia and how many Baptist churches. The persecutors have few churches. One here, one there. They're there. Episcopal churches. But the Baptist churches are everywhere. The persecutors have lost. And the persecuted have flourished. Another testimony that you cannot stamp out religion. I wish it was as easy to bring those Baptists to the Seventh-day Adventist faith. But of course those Baptists have lost their heritage. It's pity for most of them know not of what terrible price was paid to give them the freedom that they have today. And I tell you when we forget our history we are going to be lackadaisical, indifferent, laconic about all the things that we do. And brethren and sisters, I am bringing this series because I want to wake up our people. We are to be people that are going to search and seek and uh, pursue the issues of freedom. God has called us to that account. I just think of the kind of statements that were made by some of the uh, early leaders of this nation. John Adams, the second president of the United States. You have rights antecedent to all earthly governments. Do you believe it? I see us kind of backing away and backpedaling to the dictates of earthly governments. We can't do it. We have rights that are far beyond any earthly government. Rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. Rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. Now, this man was the president of the United States. But he believed that every person had a right to have a far greater um, freedom than the freedom that he could give. 
and a responsibility far greater than to him as President of the United States. I wish all presidents subsequent had had that understanding. The early framers of the American Constitution and of the, Bill of the later Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights did not come into existence till uh, 1791, as I said last night, 102 years after the British Bill of Rights. Now, if you understand the amendments to the American Constitution, of which there have been 23 amendments, only the first 10 are the Bill of Rights. There are other amendments. And by the way, only one amendment has been repealed of the amendments. Anyone know which amendment of the American Constitution was repealed? The Prohibition Amendment was repealed. And what chaos there is in America over that. But nevertheless, that, that, has been, that has been appealed. But the first ten all deal with human rights. Now, I want to lay a foundation which we will be continuing and coming back to. Every American seems to see that the most important of the Bill of Rights is the First Amendment. As I mentioned last night, it comes in two sections. The non-establishment clause. Congress will not establish any religion. So there was to be no state religion, no national religion. No religion that would expect to be paid out of the treasury of the nation. A very important starting point. Now, when we'd had established religions in Virginia, and Virginia was the dominant partner in the Bill of Rights, and two Virginians wrote the Bill of Rights, Madison and Jefferson, or primarily wrote it. They weren't the only contributors, but they were the primary writers. It's interesting to know that out of the persecution and out of the, the coercion, they had seen the need for deep liberty. You know, sometimes you've got to see how bad things are before you can take the right corrective actions. The second part is what we call the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, giving every citizen the freedom to worship according to his conscience. The interesting thing is that that was the segment of the American Constitution that the early Adventists determined would go into the Australian Constitution. Some of you I know know the story. But um, Professor Richard Ely, the Professor of History at the University of Tasmania in Australia, wrote the history 
of the development of the 116th clause of the Australian Constitution, which is the Religious Freedom Clause of the Australian Constitution. Now, Richard Ely called his book Unto God and uh, to Caesar. Unto God and to Caesar. In other words, the separation of church and state as it impinged upon the Australian Constitution. Now, if you've got any recollections of colonial history, you realize that Australia did not become a United Nation until 1901, 97 years ago. And during the 1890s was the great debate leading up to uh, the development of the Commonwealth of Australia as to the Constitution. And though they had some very strong minds that were dealing with it and some very wise people, Nevertheless, no one thought to put any religious protection in that constitution. And the, certainly the handful of Seventh-day Adventists, less than a thousand in Australia at the time, didn't think about it either. But thank the Lord, there were the American missionaries in Australia. Led by Elder Daniels, A.G. Daniels, then a, a young man in his mid-30s. J.O. Corliss, Colcar Accord, and of course, Sister White and Willie White. <coughs> and they immediately, when they realized what was happening, decided they had to be activists. Now, some of us feel that in those kind of things, we can't be activists. That's not how Sister White reacted. I don't mean activists to be politicians but activists for religious liberty, activists for temperance, all those things. By the way, we were activists against abortion back in the 1860s and 70s in the United States. Adventists took very activist positions in those days, and they tried to influence the legislators, tiny and small though they were, and not only did they try, they very greatly succeeded, and that's what happened in Australia. They started getting petitions. Now, here's a handful of Adventists spotted here and there and all over Australia. And they're taking up petitions. And they got 30-some thousand names asking that there be no established church in the Constitution. And urging that the sentiments of the First Amendment of the American Constitution be applied there. They made, that was during the 1890s, the latter part of the 1890s. And they filed their petitions of 30-some thousand names, you know, for about 800 Adventists, uh, representing probably three, or four, three to four hundred families in all of Australia at the time. That wasn't a bad effort to get 30-some thousand names. But when the Anglicans and the Presbyterians heard about it, they decided they were going to get a petition that there be some form of established religion enshrined in the Australian Constitution. And they sent their people out and they brought in 40,000 names, 40 plus thousand names. And they thought that would win the day. But you know, there was some wisdom back there that I don't always see amongst political figures today. According to Professor Ely, while they saw that the Anglicans, Presbyterians and a few others, I think some Methodists joined in too, 
um, had brought in over 40,000 names on their petitions and the Adventists had only brought in 30-some names on their petitions, they made a wise deduction. They said there are hardly any of these Adventists in Australia and they could tell that they were spotted in one little spot here and none for many hundreds of miles in some cases and then another one where the Adventists happened to be and they assumed that if the small Adventists pocketed in a few parts of Australia could bring in 30-some thousand names if they were a bigger group and they were scattered over Australia like the other religions were, they could have brought in vastly more numbers of names and that in reality the Australian public really did not want an established church. They wanted something akin to the American First Amendment and that's how it got into. And now Professor Ely, uh, he has a 15 chapters in his book. Two are given entirely to the influence of Seventh-day Adventists. They're just given over to what... And he's a Presbyterian minister himself. And uh, 25% of the pages of the book at least mention Seventh-day Adventists. And seven chapters in total uh, deal, not necessarily primarily, too exclusively, but somewhat with the Seventh-day Adventist efforts. That's how central a little body of Seventh-day Adventists was. And brethren and sisters, we have to realize that when religious freedom is at stake, we need to do something about it. I was very pleased to receive a letter that um, had been sent by Paul to um, the Prime Minister of this nation. Yes, Paul Belton, yes. Paul took the time to write a courteous, kind, but educative letter, if the Prime Minister will read it, or if he doesn't read it, one of his associates in some way. I wonder if 10,000 Adventists wrote letters. Would it make any difference? You know, one letter can make a difference. In fact, we're going to look at what difference one can make. One person. Some of us think we're nobodies. You know, the most influential people I've found in this world are the nobodies. When people are well known, often, oh, well, that's him again. I notice that in terms of my own experience. I always say, look, if, you, if something's not right in our church, write. When I write, they've already got an agenda. They know what I believe and where I stand, and it probably doesn't do much good. But I tell you what, if there were a thousand letters from nobodies, people they didn't know, it would shake someone up. They don't know where people are coming from. They're not sure. Makes a difference. And in this issue of religious liberty, it's lost because of the inertia. And we as Seventh-day Adventists are going to be just as culpable if we do nothing as anyone else. And God is calling for his people today to make a sincere 
earnest effort to guard carefully religious liberty. You know, in, in Sister White's day, there were people saying, we shouldn't be wasting our time on religious liberty. The persecution's going to come anyway. <clears throat> Maybe some said the sooner the better, get it all over with. Sister White took great umbrage at that. And she wrote that the uh, subject of religious liberty is part of the three angels' messages. That's pretty important, isn't it? I know when Russell was working on this, the, the Constitution in Australia, there were some there in Melbourne. I, I met them, small group, maybe five or six, but they were very determined we should do nothing at all. Just let it go. But we can't do that and be true to the spirit of prophecy or the word of God. Well, brethren and sisters, at 11 o'clock we're going to take up um, the issue of liberty and toleration and also what we as individuals can do. But before we do that, I want to go back to our text again. Because some of you weren't here. When we started the meeting, I don't want you to miss the great blessing of this text in Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. It's a text that we must keep constantly in our mind and believe with all our hearts. Second Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I hope there's a freedom in everybody's heart here today. The Spirit of the Lord's in my heart. If the Spirit of the Lord's in each of our hearts. Then the whole of this encampment has the liberty that God wants for us. The liberty to be free from sin. The liberty to study according and believe according to the conscience and dictates of his word. That's the freedom that is above all other freedoms. Until one day we'll have every freedom that we could possibly imagine throughout eternity in the courts of heaven and in the earth made new. God bless you.
thank you for the time we've been able to spend in study this morning. And we pray now that you would dismiss us with your blessing. We pray that our thoughts would be continually turned to you and to your word, and that all our thoughts, words, and actions would be in harmony with your will for this Sabbath day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.